0: I'd love to sell out and get a bunch of money.
1: <laughs> we said it. Your movies do sometimes make a lot of money. That's it doesn't possible. mean I
0: get it. Pay this man. He no, deserves no, it all. No, I'm serious. The phrase is, it has been for years, you get famous in movies but rich on TV. Right. And that's pretty much how it is. But I do remember meeting uh, Kristen. Kristen Stewart. Yeah, we met at Blinky's Donuts at <laughs> Panga Canyon Boulevard and Dumets in Woodland Hills. Is that your go-to? She was on her way to Brazil for a twilight junket or something. Right. She has to meet you at 8.30 in the morning. I go, can she meet at Blinky's? <laughs> <laughs> she like, she's like, I need coffee, man.
1: Prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. I'm Josh Horowitz, and today on Happy, Sad, Confused, we have a two-time Academy Award winner for the last 25 plus years. He's made some of my favorite films, Election. About Schmidt, Sideways, The Descendants, and now his latest, The Holdovers. I love this movie. I love this filmmaker. I am pleased to welcome Alexander Payne to Happy Sad Confused for the very first time.
0: Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you.
1: It's good to see you. We had
0: a conversation a couple of weeks ago, and it went well. So now we're doing this. I passed the first test. Yeah. Well, I don't know what happens after this. It's mutual. It's mutual.
1: Um, No, I'm thrilled to talk to you about this film and uh, this remarkable career. I mean, since we spoke. The good news is people are enjoying your movie. Actual real people, and like me, like the fake uh, critics. Um, The movie's doing very well in
0: limited release. You're platforming. It's expanding. Right. Well, it just opened a few days ago. We are speaking here on Wednesday, November 1st. It just opened in two cities five days ago on Friday. So I hope it's doing well. I hope it, you know...
1: Well, the, the deep, dark <clears throat> secret about Alexander Payne's career is you are a not so
0: secret moneymaker. Your movies actually do very well. So we, not all of them. Well, not all of them. The, the big ones were Sideways and The Descendants.
1: But those did. I mean, I mean, I was actually shocked. I mean, I knew they did well, but like The Descendants make, makes nearly two hundred million dollars sideways over a hundred million.
0: Descendants the, 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 the is the one I can sort of brag about, which is apparently I haven't corroborated this. But apparently, that year at Fox and 20th Century Fox, it was the biggest money maker compared to what it cost, because it just cost cost twenty something, and then made like two hundred million. So compared to cost, it was the biggest success that year. So not the biggest movie, but the biggest, you know, you get in
1: relation to the budget. <coughs> right, right.
0: So in terms of like
1: the the creative freedom you've had over your entire career, do you think that's related as much to the accolades to the the fact that you know you do get the awards and the great critic critical praise but you also generally or sometimes do
0: quite well by studios the key is keeping the budgets low yeah that's the key that's where freedom lies so i've never needed or even necessarily wanted a hit what i need and generally what filmmakers need is you got to make your negative cost some degree of the what we used to call p and a <clears throat> and one dollar, right? <laughs> then you can keep making movies. I mean, filmmakers basically just keep about think about what can I do to keep making movies. Stay out of director jail, which is a real thing for directors. It can be uh, if your movie tanks. Yeah, yeah. And I had a tanker in the uh, the unmentionable. No, in, 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 <laughs> we can mention. It's a good movie. It downsizing. Just didn't, didn't no, yeah. no downsizing. Man, you know that tank bad, but. I wasn't put thrown into the movie Who's Gow too much because I think, hopefully, I, I think I'd accumulated right. enough e- equity yeah. mm-hmm. before then that it could be, that write-off could be a one-off.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so at, at this stage when a movie is starting to um, be released, are you at peace with however this turns out? You like the movie,
0: obviously. No, that's not obvious. Okay. But finish your question. That's another thing. Cut, 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 okay. okay.
1: I guess the first part of it is uh, your general demeanor in this stage of releasing a movie. You've had this movie basically done for over a year. So you've had to kind of like live with it. I've
0: had some validation that it's watchable. <laughs> that's that's that. Largely focus. No, okay, yeah. low, largely in focus and watchable. And the fact that it's got... <laughs> largely in focus. Okay. There's one out of focus shot. <laughs> Sorry, Glenn. Uh, no, the fact that... Um, Focus picked it up a year ago at the Toronto Film Festival, unfinished, and paid what I'm told was a decent amount for it, showed, you know, exhibited belief in the film. And then its reception at some festivals uh, has been generous. And so one is relieved that the film is generally playing well. You know, first and foremost, it's a relief. Right.
1: Now the back half of my random, of my assortment of words there was something about your own contentment with the film. And you seem to stop me because that is not necessarily the case that you feel. I'm
0: not trying to eat humble pie here or something like that. But I make the films, I like parts of them, you know, I'm still learning. I maybe can like them more or dislike them more in hindsight. Than in the moment, because in the moment, you know, you're just splashing around at it and feeling it's good or decent enough, beat by beat by beat, mostly through editing. Uh, But then you really need an audience to tell you what you've got on your hands, you know. And that's why Kevin Tent, the editor, and I start screening. Well, many filmmakers do really, really early on, as soon as we have a cut uh we have to show it some version of it not just to financiers you know to so they feel okay about it but m- more importantly to my friends and anybody we can get to come see the movie and that tells you if your movie's basically working or not especially if it's a comedy
1: yeah i mean you you audience is king right i mean you can trust your own instincts to an extent but then once you start to give it over <clears throat> to the audience they're going to tell you what
0: absolutely is correct or not and especially when you well you're making it for an audience it depends on how large an audience you're making it for you know if you I mean in a way basically my audience is me and my best friends right right if I can appeal to them and then your luck as a filmmaker is if what occurs to you and your best friends as basically a good movie overlaps happens right (laughs) happens to occur to enough other people that you can recover your negative cost, right. some degree of PA, and and right. one dollar, <laughs> you know? That key dollar. Um, uh, let's give a, a little bit of overview for The
1: audience that is unfamiliar with, with the holdovers. Um, the elevator pitch, I occurs to me most of your films don't necessarily lend themselves to elevator pitches to that kind of like, I mean, like, what is sideways? Like,
0: what do you even say to somebody that's gonna? <laughs> Two guys go on a wine tour the week before one of them is to get married. Yeah, so that, that works, I just don't know if that's, it doesn't say much.
1: Exactly. Nor, nor should
0: it. You've got to see the damn movie.
1: <laughs> right. I guess that's the benefit of being I was interpainted now with the, again, the body of work. Like, trust me, I'll put and this the body. And the body. <laughs> they're, they're buying the body. They're buying the film and the body. Okay. So this is set 1970. Basically, a trio of characters are, are at the core here, uh, led by the great Paul Giamatti, a curmudgeonly professor. Is that fair to say? Um, in that kind of lost holiday week at the end of the year. And... Um, a cook, a student, a professor, all essentially finding each other in a way, finding companionship uh, in this time that's that's rough on a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me a little bit about, okay, so this, I, I, I know this is inspired um, by a French film, I believe, that you saw, Inspired
0: loosely, what okay. it means is I stole the premise. <laughs> okay,
1: <laughs> is money is it change hands or no?
0: No, 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 no. The base I saw a nineteen thirty-five French film by the great Marcel Pagnol. It's called Mer Luce, and it has the same basic setup: a uh, curmudgeonly teacher with a wonky eye is charged with taking care of a bunch of students at an all-boys boarding school right. who have nowhere to go over the holidays, and winds up having some kind of a relationship with one of them. You have no... That's the setup. You didn't go to a boarding school, as I understand it, right? No, I went to an all-boys school, private school, high school, but not a, uh, not a boarding school, no.
1: So is that, I mean, you know, the, the old adage is right what you know, and often filmmakers, especially earlier in their career, they're mining their own life and experiences. At this stage, is, is there a little bit more, um, I don't know, confidence that you can, you can graft your own life experiences onto the specificity?
0: Of any story. There's a, you have to, um, there's a big difference between an autobiographical film and a personal film. Right. They can can still be be personal. They can be the same. Yeah. But uh, the process of making a film, if you're making it, you know, sincerely, makes it personal. So David Hemmingson and I, the screenwriter of this one, started with that basic premise I just told you but then the process of what story skeleton you decide upon and then what character and thematic flesh you put on the skeleton, the choices you make there, what occurs to you, that's what makes it personal. So do you see as much of yourself in this as the Omaha
1: set? Oh hell, all
0: all the movies are personal. Yeah, And that's also the job of the professional filmmaker is to make it personal. I've used this example before, but I'll say it again. For example, uh, the best years of our lives, Mm -hmm. William Wyler. Did we talk about this last time? Okay, so um, he did not write the screenplay, but for example, the wonderful passage early in the film where uh, Frederick March comes home to Myrna Loy, and she's in the kitchen, her back to the front door across a hallway, and the children open the door, and there's dad, and they, they're they overjoyed. But he says, shh, I want to surprise your mother. And she, on her back, hears, who's that at the... D-? And her shoulders tell you she who she realizes who it is. And she turns, and they look at each other after the years of war down that hall. You, It makes you weep. Yeah. Weiler staged it that way because that's how he came home to his wife. So... It's just a small example about how you make things personal by, I mean, and that's the job of the professional director. I feel is to make anything you you do personal somehow.
1: You mentioned, you know, ultimately films are for an audience, and thus far, all of your films have been on the.
0: And I got to say, a group audience too, not individual viewers at home. Ideally. Well, that's exactly what I want to talk about. Thank so this
1: you. is this is this is a film um, that plays great in theaters with a big group. As all of your films, I would say, do especially like comedy is always very important to your films. And who do, who wants to laugh in isolation? <laughs> it just doesn't work as well. Um, I, when, for instance, like when this was sold to Focus, is a big part of that. There's no way this is going to end up on you know if you if you go to Searchlight. Oh wait, are we suddenly on Hulu? Like, is that like a big thing for you at this point in your career yes. to make sure?
0: Yes. And hats off to Focus for committing themselves and this film to theatrical yeah and it helped that i mean they bought it a year ago it would have been september of last year and for a number of reasons they made the decision to wait to sit on it for a year and put it out this year not last but chief among them is that people would be more used to going back to theaters now and hopefully next year even more so yeah and not just for the big movies even though the big movies prime the pump of getting people go to the you know Oppenheimer, and sure, but Barbie there's also a
1: trickle-down down effect of that, that too. And That's, now yep.
0: Taylor Swift, <laughs> right? No, that that you you go <clears throat> go for the big movies, but maybe well, do what I do, stay at the at the cineplex and sneak into the other one. See, How do you think I spent my movies? teenage years? With triple features, yeah. I, I used to, to
1: do, I should,
0: yeah. I used to call it movie smorgasbord. <laughs> Pay for one movie and then just go see six movies.
1: Oh yeah. Every year after, uh, I, was a, I would go away for summer camp for eight weeks, I would come back, my older brother would take me to the movies and we'd just like, see as many movies as possible, catch up on everything we missed that yeah. summer. Happiest memories. Um, when you think back, you must have had so many remarkably wonderful experiences with audiences for your film, film festivals, premieres, actual audiences. Do any stand out to you? Has that really
0: made a mark on you? No. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not to say they didn't happen, but, you know, with these lights on me and in front of a sure, camera, sure. I'm blanking. No problem. Also, I'm splashing around so much in this one because I am watching it with a lot of audiences. And I get asked, like, oh, will will you be sitting through the film tonight? And most of the time, particularly in the early festival, it's absolute. Are you kidding? Absolutely. Yeah. I got to see is how I the movie's playing. Yeah. <laughs> and if I'm going to do a Q&A afterwards, you got to get a sense of the temperature of the room. But also, uh, a movie is not, as we've been suggesting, a movie is not complete without an audience, not viewers, but an audience, especially a comedy. And then we who work in film don't have that rush that stage actors get or musicians get that what you do is immediately seen and felt by an audience and you have that communication the closest we can get to it is with early festival audiences right not later audiences because they're because then they're like well i don't think it's that good (laughs) (laughs) you know i'm one of those too but uh and that's and that has to bleed into the fact that the actors writer strike and actor strike have been going on in the writer strike is over, so now David Hemmingson, the writer, can be present in some of these screenings and see his words being appreciated by the audience. But, you know, I got a <clears throat> text from Paul Giamatti last week saying, you know, just before the opening, he said, I feel like Achilles brooding in my tent. <laughs> just waiting. Put me in, coach. Put me in. And this poor kid, Dominic Sessa, who's never been in a movie before, and yeah. he co-stars with uh, Giamatti, Hasn't seen it with an audience, you know. I, I say, well, you know, wear a mustache and right. sneak in, and everybody's scared. Him like, no, if somebody recognizes you and <laughs> takes a picture of you and posts it, everybody's in trouble. I heard that story though. Was it his girlfriend that showed up
1: at a at yeah, a yeah, yeah, yeah? She came. She That'd
0: came be- to. She was like the last A at a q and A. His girlfriend. I mean, he's seen the movie, but alone. Yeah.
1: When you think back to your childhood, were the the, the films that made the impact on you the most? Films you saw at
0: home or films in a theater? Theater, yeah. Although I have vivid memories of all we. This is in back 60s and early 70s. They had teeny tiny TVs mm-hmm. that you put in the kitchen or something like that, sure. and so I would take those TVs and take them up secretly and bring them upstairs and watch old movies that started at 10:30 under the covers. So That's you, where I saw all the old uh, Warner Brothers gangster pictures. Were you the anomaly in your family? You grew up in Omaha.
1: Parents ran a restaurant, as I understand. Not it. parents, my dad. Your dad did. Okay, sorry. So, were they film lovers? Did they have a passion that the passion that you have?
0: Not passion, but my mother and her mother and her siblings had been very avid film goers. I saw. I, I was watching back here.
1: Like it's, it's nice to say the sentence. Your, t- your two Oscar acceptance speeches, your second for the descendants, uh, is very sweet. You brought your mom, dedicated it to your, to your mom. That must have been a very meaningful thing. I mean, these things can be silly and gratifying, but
0: to like share it. With, well, she had also threatened me and said, <laughs> if you ever win it again, you have to dedicate it to me like some of those other people do. Right. There's that part. That's a little darker. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to keep, stay on the sweet side. And now she has dimension, doesn't remember well, any of it. <laughs> <laughs> She's 100 years old. Um, but she did experience your
1: success and see it. And that must, be, must have been a great...
0: Yeah. What meant a lot to her at the time was because uh, I, I said something to her in Greek. We happen to be Greek-American. At the Oscars, and for about a month after that, she was the most famous Greek mother in the world. <laughs> she was getting calls from Athens to be interviewed and everything, and when the, she enjoyed that month. Too bad she can't remember it. Oh. <laughs> the
1: um, You know, we talk about your films playing for audiences in, in a theater. When I think back, I'm curious, like Citizen Ruth and Election, when I think back to my experiences seeing those films... I remember those doing actually very well on home video. Is that true? Did they find like a second life? I don't think life?
0: Citizen Ruth ever did. Probably, I, I bet Election did, because <clears throat> they pretty much they the distributors pretty much dumped the, both those films at the box office. But Election accrued some critical right uh, momentum, and then by the end of the year was appraised or reappraised. It had come out in April of that year, April of '99. Uh, but you know, Jim and I were nominated for an Oscar that year, right. which kind of surprised us. We thought maybe Reese Witherspoon might, but she wasn't.
1: Well, it surprised people because, and I think I think you've even said this. Like at first, when that material came to you, you you know, it seemed to be just a, you know a high school film, which well, didn't that's what they in. had in mind. Yeah,
0: that's what Paramount was was looking for. Well, it was MTV. That's right. Not MTV even films, so much, it, right? <laughs> but but they were all under Viacom at the time. And so MTV was starting at launching a movie making entity, right? And this was one of theirs, and they, you know, Albert and Ron, the producers, and brought it to MTV, well, they'll want to do a teen movie. And there were there was a whole spate of high school movies at the time in the yeah. late 90s, which I couldn't have been less interested in. <laughs> and I didn't even read that novel for a long time after it had been given to me until finally I did kind of begrudgingly, and saw, so, oh damn, all right, this is good. I think Jim and I can do something with this. So, but so, but I interrupted your the question, you were... I, I'm all over the place. You, I, were, you were talking about home video and Citizen Ruth and election. No, it just,
1: I, I was curious because I, <coughs> I wasn't sure what the, the fact was, if, if home video actually was beneficial to you or, or not.
0: But I think people probably caught up to election on home video. Right. I don't know if anyone ever really caught up to Citizen Ruth. Citizen Ruth did have like the
1: festival run, right? Did Sundance and, and that's kind of where it found a little bit of a life and reputation.
0: To some degree, it still tanked later. I think Miramax pretty much dumped it. They didn't spend a dime on it on the release. Was that But it helped my career enough to score a second film to get election. And that one really put me and Jim Taylor and me on the big board.
1: Yeah, because when I was reading back, I mean, that first kind of act of your career is fascinating because you come out of film school um, and you make this thesis film that... The Passion of... Martin. Martin, which I, I watched a little of this morning. I think there is a lot of the text of Alexander
0: Payne in that film. It's on the uh, Criterion Blu-ray of election. Oh, I love it. In its entirety, and they did. They were generous enough, Criterion was, to let me do some restoration to it. So it's in pretty good shape. And if you just,
1: you know, I, I only had a chance to watch the first 15 minutes or so. You, you, you That's an Alexander Payne film. <laughs> it's there. You see it there. And clearly others did, too, because from what I gather, you got a deal out of that. You like a really g- promising, remarkable deal, which I don't think would happen now. I don't even know that those Maybe deals exist. Would.
0: What, to, to uh, when film schools have their end-of-the-year screenings in May or June, don't scouts still go looking for talent? Scouts from I, agencies and... I suppose and, they did, but even like, it sounded like a relatively lucrative, for that time,
1: contract with the Universal,
0: no? I mean, yeah, within a month of that film's showing at the end of the year the spotlight awards at UCLA. Uh I had an agent and a stu a writing directing deal at Universal. So what did that mean? I got $125,000 and an office on the lot. 75 of that was the writers guild minimum for right. something being contract and then 50 was I don't know, we love you money. <laughs> You must nothing have felt like you had it made though. Like, nothing, oh, this, is,
1: it's, this is easy.
0: I'm, I got I it. thought I'd be directing my first feature within a year and it was five years. Right. And that feature eventually. But that yeah. 125 grand helped see me through those then lean years. You know, you keep about half of it. Right. <laughs> so I had about 60000 $65,000 on to live on or at least supplement whatever else I was doing for like the next five years. So that script eventually becomes about Schmidt. Correct. Um, But before that, so
1: Citizen Ruth, those that haven't seen it, it's still a fantastic film. Laura Dern, who you've since worked with, worked with her dad, et cetera. Um, That's that's when you start to obviously work with very accomplished, famous actors. I mean, you're you're directing Laura, but you're also directing Tippi Hedren, Burt Reynolds. Yep. Is that intimidating? Did
0: you feel like you knew how to work with actors of that stripe then? It was slightly intimidating and I felt I knew how to work with actors, even then. That I that I have to say. I always felt that's the one, you know, you go to film school and some people are really good with camera and some sure. people are really good with lenses and some people are good with lighting or mood or whatever. And I always sort of felt I was pretty good with actors. Is that tangible? No, like I think because I people? was a frustrated, act, not a frustrated, but I just feel I have some acting talent mm-hmm. without being very good at it. <laughs> But I get that, and I'm kind of a ham and clown, and I sort of – I just – yeah. And also, even going back to my – my not even Passion to Martin, but Carmen, my 18-minute Super 8 version of the opera Carmen that sure. I made <laughs> in Project 1 at UCLA, still a comedy, uh, a send-up, and uh, – I cast that one well and worked with the actors well and so anyway I, I don't mean to be patting myself on the no, back yeah. too much but the other thing too is it's not just me and my attitude but the actors who chose to be on Citizen Ruth were doing so because they liked the script and had seen Passionate of Martin and believed in me so they made it easy for me it's a two way street that's huge yeah
1: You don't want to feel like you're having to prove yourself in the middle of making your own movie. You have
0: enough of a job to... No, they were in it and taking scale. I mean, there was a a feature film with 44 days of shooting, something like that, long post-schedule for $2.1 million. And a lot of that was because all the actors from Laura Dern on down were just taking scale. For so that so you had Burt Reynolds and Tippi Hedren and Susie Kurtz and Mary Kay Place and Kurtwood Smith, all coming to Omaha, Nebraska, in some jerk's first film, but they liked the script. That's amazing. It's, amazing. it's somewhat surprising to me because you know there are
1: the stories of like uh, Burt Reynolds giving like Paul Thomas Anderson shit, and it's like what kind of shit did?
0: I, I, can we say shit on your podcast? Apparently, okay. I just
1: did. yeah yeah. Um, I I think he just questioned maybe he. I don't know. These might be apocryphal stories, but...
0: No, I can tell you true ones, but go ahead. Oh, about that production? No, but or, I, about, or about yours with the birds? Yeah, I, no, I
1: don't know about they just, I, uh, the same from what I gather. He did not get along and he did not
0: trust Paul's direction. I don't know if he didn't... If he, he still wanted... did it in spite of himself because he's terrific in Boogie Nights. Oh, he's Boogie amazing in it. yeah. Uh, with me, he trusted my direction and was nice, but couldn't remember his dialogue. Oh, wow. And I had to go to cue cards, and but I, he was in a position where I had to bring up cue cards, not he. At least tell a young kid, right. "Hey, man, I want to do good for your movie. Would you just? I, but I need a little help because, you know, it just helps. Like, great. And we're on a tight schedule, so that'll help me. Shh. Whatever you say to a director, yeah. But it was like pulling teeth. That's an
1: awkward situation. It's, it's. I mean, you know, <clears throat> we can get to this uh, in terms of the holdovers, and it's often been cited of your your films had that kind of 70s film sensibility and, and, and indeed you've called upon 70s film stars uh, whether it's Burt Reynolds or Jack Nicholson, uh, Stacey Keach, uh, Bruce Dern,
0: Bo Bridges. So that must be something that... It's a thrill. Yeah. That. It's a thrill to work with those guys and there's a way in which maybe because I had, a, I had two older brothers, one born in 1950, the other 1953, and those guys anyway there's a way in which I kind of see them as older brothers yeah I mean yes as the stars that I idolized, but also from a period that was really groovy and and they appreciated the movies they were making with me and there was just very good camaraderie the one I really want to work with is Jeff Bridges <clears throat>
1: Not a false note is possible out of that actor. He's just and
0: I've worked with Bo, his brother Bo Bridges, yeah. and I met Jeff Bridges on a number of occasions. And always just feels, and I'm sure he gives that vibe to yeah. many directors he meets. But like, hey, yeah, let's.
1: Yeah, man. I'm your older
0: brother. <laughs> exactly.
1: I do want to talk a lot about that casting because you've, you you have cast the hell out of your movies and obviously actors love working with you. Um, so like About Schmidt, for instance, I mean, Nicholson is amazing in that film as he always is, but he's particularly oh, fantastic. Don't forget
0: Udo Kier. Udo- I had Udo <laughs> Kier in uh, Downsizing.
1: Fantastic. Okay, so, so how do you get Jack? How hard is it to get the great Jack Nicholson
0: on board your project? The way it happened for About Schmidt, was easy seemingly which was that so i had written the aforementioned script for universal which you did your research and knew it came like a dozen years later it became about schmidt so the reason it happened is that many years later a guy named harry giddis jack nicholson's very good old friend and indeed the character jake 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 giddis his name for (laughs) harry giddis sent me a book called about schmidt by a writer named Lewis Begley here in New York City, which was about a fellow who retires and questions his choices and all that. And I had kind of forgotten about my previous script. It was painful to think about, and let's just move on. And, you know, it was the one I had in the proverbial bottom desk drawer. But I read it, I thought, oh, I'm still interested in that theme. I still haven't really scratched that itch. And it was designed to be a vehicle for Jack Nicholson. In other words, Harry had sent Jack Nicholson the book. Jack Nicholson had read it and told Harry, okay, if you get a good script, let me know. And so Harry found me and I wrote it with Jim. And then the more we were adapting the book, actually the more we wound up rewriting my previous script called The Coward using some narrative threads taken from the novel, which Mm -hmm. allowed us to put some things in act one that paid off in act three. We turned it into Harry, like on a Monday or Tuesday. Friday, he gave it to Jack Nicholson. And by Tuesday, I was in Jack Nicholson's house, who had accepted to do it.
1: That's a that's a good Tuesday. I so would it's think. a lot yeah. Yeah. of getting there. Yeah. You
0: know, Lewis Beckley has to write the book, and Harry Giddis has to write, uh, buy the rights or get the rights bought for him by Sony have Jack Nicholson, sure. have, you know, the timing with election that people had seen election, liked election. Who's this guy? So a lot of things. That's why I say seemingly a lot bubbles around underneath. But, but uh, that's how it happened. And once he's in, though, I would
1: imagine yeah, he was in. He's in because the, the lore on Jack is this is a man who you know, he's still with us. Sadly, he's not acting anymore, but loved to act like he lived to act. This, the famous story, I think, in like a few good men on those like courtroom scenes is like he did all like the opposite. Coverage. Like he didn't need to like be there for
0: Well the old all the old pros do that to, to do the off camera.
1: Right. But I guess like the, the Only
0: jerks don't don't stick around for off camera.
1: They're in the trailer. Yeah, you can that's a good barometer. So he on set, what, what did anything surprise you in terms of like how he I mean you know he's got the goods, you know he's Jack frickin' Nicholson. What was I dunno, what was
0: the experience like? It made me a better director. Because he's so capable and exact that anything I would say, he would do exactly that in a way which rippled magnificently through the entire take. It's like driving a Ferrari. Not that I drive a Ferrari, but one of those great cars with
1: really tight. Right. You can get a very specific you know, I I direction. 80, I, and,
0: yeah. I have an 88 station wagon. You, you can do this, and it just keeps going straight. But those cars... <clears throat> So often, I'd give him a direction, and then he would do exactly that. I'd go, Oh man, that's not what I meant. Or that wasn't quite right. And I have to say, Cut, excuse me, I know I said this, but really what I mean is that. But nor did he expect brilliance in direction in in this way. He would say, I mean, I called, I've told the story before, forgive me, especially when About Schmidt was out, however many years ago. But before directing him, uh, I called up Mike Nichols, who who had reached out to me in a friendly way after seeing election. Wow. And I said, you've directed Jack Nicholson three or four times. Could you please give me some advice on directing Jack Nicholson? And he said, this is over the phone, he said, um, oh, it's very simple, my boy. Just tell him the truth because he's going to smell it on you anyway. Right. No trickery. No, don't put up a front. In other words, you don't need to coddle him, just say what you a, need. Yeah. Be a director, you got to be yourself. Yeah. No false fronts. And there's so much, when you take uh, directing the actor classes in film school or something, there's so much, or you read books about how to direct actors, there are these, never give a line reading, uh, always give an actable verb, uh, don't give a result. Who's, who can do all that? <laughs> I'm not Harold Klerman. I'm not Elliot Kazan to, like, think of the most perfect thing in the right moment, you right, know? Right, right. Uh, so I could, in fact, Nicholson told me earlier, he goes, you know, if you, it's okay to give me a line reading. That's amazing. <laughs> because especially, he goes, I've learned that especially with writers who then direct their own things, they hear it in a certain way in their brain, and it's got a certain rhythm, and I need to know that. Wow. So he was completely <laughs> open. One other thing, can yeah, I please, just tell well, again? Please. I I've told this anecdote <laughs> before, but it's worth retelling. That on the because so, <clears throat> even though I have Jack Nicholson, apparent a you know, it was still low budget, below the line, had to make all my days. And there was one scene, the first or second week, where. Uh, we had to get in and out of this location. So I kind of had to dictate a priori the coverage. So we bring in Mr. Nicholson and I say, well, Mr. Nicholson, let's start here in a wide shot and I'd like you to walk here and I'll get a close up, but then I want you to walk there, you know, whatever it was. And then I said, does that feel okay? Is that all right? And he said, look kid, whatever you can come up with, I can find a way to justify it to myself. So what do you need? Very practical. Which is also someone, because he never forgot his beginnings as uh in low budget. Right. Roger Corman years. You ago. know, with with Corman and yeah. at BBS. Where you were always under the gun and trying to crank out a movie in I don't know, twelve days or something.
1: That's a film. He never
0: he never let sorry to interrupt, no, please. but he never forgot those origins. Right. And it's what made him a great not just actor but filmmaker. You know, he's an actor who's and director, but whose body of work at least during a certain period of his life, is as cohesive and unique as any single director's. I had the privilege of I interviewed Jack actually. Oh,
1: I know you buried the lead. Well, for for and you, I only mention this because you you just said he's a filmmaker. Uh, I noticed that the two Jakes was re, they they did a remastered DVD, and I reached out to his folks, and sure enough, he wanted to talk about the two Jakes, the China, Great. China sequels. Great. How long ago was this? This is probably actually probably around the a little after you made uh no it's probably more like 12 years ago not quite okay sure. yeah and um it was a thrill thrill of a lifetime did you go meet him? did you go to his house no no i spent about an hour on the phone with him and he was delightful and then i remember he endorsed hillary clinton uh uh-huh. that that year it must have been 2008 do i have that right I don't know. uh and about a month later i rang up his uh his assistant and said, you know, does he wanna talk about Hillary? And sure enough, like within a half an hour, he rang me up on the phone again and it was, again, you know how press shy Mr. Nicholson is. It was a a true privilege,
0: yeah. He's a lovely guy. He was always really uh, elegant with me.
1: That, so I was gonna say that film much like a lot of your films, you're not a director that that, that shies away from narration. A lot of like filmmakers- You mean will... voiceover? Sorry, yes. Oh, I love it. A lot of people say that's a crutch, like, oh. You that's
0: didn't... like saying don't give uh, a result to an actor. It's one of those dumb things <laughs> they you. Stupid adages that is not, if you execute it well. So yeah, go tell Billy Wilder and <laughs> Terrence Malick and Stanley Kubrick that voiceover is no good in a movie. Come on, man. <laughs> Killing me. Do you record that after the fact or are you on set with the actors?
1: I mean, that's so key to like, I think Election is so, I mean, that is part and parcel of that film. We grabbed it
0: right after production. Went to a studio in Omaha and grabbed most of it. And then most of it remained intact. And it's good then because the the actors are still very much in character. There were some lines of dialogue I think I had to go back some months later and pick up. Oh, especially since on Election we shot a new ending. Right. Excuse me. So I had to get some new voiceover from Matthew Broderick.
1: That, um, I, should, I should mention, I know there's no real news, but like in the last year it's been said that the Tom Parada sequel novel is something that you guys are developing potentially as a film. You know, yes. Race. So, now the news was that that was for Paramount Plus. This dovetails with our earlier conversation. Would you ever make that for Expressly Paramount so Plus? So I
0: was busy making this movie, The Holdovers, when all that deal stuff was being hashed out and it's like, oh, yeah, Paramount Plus, and they're paying this much, and this is instructor Paramount Plus. If and when Jim Taylor and I get around to it, I'm going to renegotiate that. No, for sure. (laughs) I'm I'm going to renegotiate that Paramount Plus thing Yeah, and go, and not just the two-week, the begrudging two-week theatrical window or something because, bless, all right, I I was about to go on a streamer tirade, but I won't. (laughs)
1: is there is is there a passion for revisiting those characters i mean tom has and you know has the broad strokes for you but you can obviously adapt it however you want now
0: how faithful to that book are you going to be tom wrote a very fine novel as he always does he's an outstanding writer and uh jim and i would enjoy doing jim taylor and reese witherspoon would enjoy playing it and um we don't want to rope in matt Matthew Broderick's character, Jim McAllister, Jim is not in this book, right. but we'd want to rope him in somehow. The other thing, too, I'm slightly averse to is making another high school movie. Right. I did Election. I did, what is this one, Holdovers, and then <laughs> there are bits and pieces of it in Sideways and in a pilot I did, so I'm a little over with it, over it. <clears throat> so Jim and I are talking right now about how can we adapt that novel faithfully but loosely right and, and put our own voice into it so we'll, we'll get there we're not quite there yet but we'll
1: get there the um you know again we've been talking a lot about casting and I think oh the reason I said this,
0: that sorry to be clear yeah. is that Tom's novel also takes place in a high school no, of course. so that's yeah. what that's why I said I didn't want to make another high school movie fair enough <laughs>
1: I love all the casting stories and the would-be casting stories. I'm a sucker for that stuff. Uh, I talked, we talked about getting Nicholson. Did you ever come close to getting Gene Hackman for Nebraska? I mean, I love what Bruce did, obviously, but no. the great Hackman is, no. is retired for his good, I agent,
0: guess. His agent, uh, a real lovely guy and kind of legend at CA, a guy named Fred Spector. Right. He's in his early 90s and still working. Oh, really? Like just a really amazing cat. Uh, he said, I'll send it to him, but don't expect an answer. So he claims that he sent it to Gene Hackman down in Santa Fe two, three, four times and never got a response for it. So. All right. He's resolute in his retirement. Hopefully he's enjoying it. Do you, do you enjoy, you know, we talk
1: a lot about like the big-name actors. But it worked out. Oh, of course it did. Because Bruce, I, Bruce I, now fantastic. I can't imagine anyone yeah. other than Bruce Dern in that part. You know, I think of something like The Descendants, then on the flip side of, like, lesser-known actors. And at the time, Shailene was not a huge name. She had done, I think an ABC family show. Correct. Et cetera. Um, And there are stories of, I think like folks ranging from like Brie Larson to Kristen Stewart being up for that role. Do you relish that process? Do you know, do you know immediately? Do you, is it, is it gut? Like how, how are you casting particularly? I
0: didn't know about Brie Larson. She's talked about it. She's mentioned that she, uh, did I meet her? Apparently. Oh, I remember meeting her later.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, someone's got, it's fuzzy. It's okay. Don't
0: tell her. He's a, a lovely good. actor, she is. but I do remember meeting uh, Kristen. Kristen Stewart. Yeah, we met at Blinky's Donuts, at <laughs> Topanga Canyon Boulevard, and Dumetts in Woodland Hills. Is that your go-to? Because she lived in Woodland Hills at the time, and I lived in Topanga Canyon, <laughs> still do. So I said, like, she she's on her way out of like she was on her way to Brazil for a Twilight junket or something. Right. She has to meet you at eight thirty in the morning. I go, can she meet at Blinky's? <laughs> She went she like got donuts? there, she's like, I need <laughs> coffee, man. And there's a Starbucks right across the street. So we went to the Starbucks. But yeah, I met her. She was lo- she was nice. But you knew, was but it entertaining? You know what Shailene? helped me is Shailene came in and read. I need actors to read for me. Right. Even ones who were known and everything. And I mean no disrespect. Yeah. But. Until um, you actually see them even and Bruce, the Even Bruce Dern. I even actually asked him to come in and do me the courtesy, and I'm on bended knee and yeah. very respectful, very grateful. Just It just helps me, even if I pretty much know you're going to get the part, just come in and read so I can kind of start thinking about you more concretely, you in that part. It, it might, and wait, yeah, one course. other anecdote. I worked with the great, don't say that lightly, Judy Greer on The Descendants, and uh, I don't know if she's still like this. But at the time, she described herself as an audition-only actor. And I said, why? She goes, oh, she, she wants goes, to prove it to herself. So she's yeah, doing well, it. Yeah. sort of, <laughs> yes. But she said, I don't want to just take an offer. I want to go in and meet the director. And what are we going to do? Just small talk? Who's going to get anything out of that? Right. I want to say some of the words of the script. And only when I do, do I have a sense that I'm right for the part with this director. Right. Like, is it really a good fit, me? This, the, this text and the director.
1: Well, it must be so gratifying for you, and this is not, nothing new, that you've really exercised what control you have on, over that casting process, like the famous stories of, of Sideways, and you obviously worked with Clooney later on on The Descendants, but like you, know, you stuck to your guns and you're like, no, it's Giamatti, it's Thomas Hayden Church, and I, you it, know, maybe it, you can get a bigger budget with George Clooney, but you wanted to make the film on your terms,
0: and the proof's in the pudding, clearly. They, they, the big they, Ask, often ask directors to compromise on the single most important part of the narrative movie, which is the casting of the leads in order to have the most famous person in that six month window of time, you know, in which you're trying to get the movie cast. And uh, one, well, I have to be willing to take a lower budget for the film in order to get the right casting in there. It's super important. Um, when it works, sorry. When it works out that you have a star, I mean, in the event of a tie, the star wins because sure. <laughs> everybody's happier and you get you know, the money flows yeah. and everybody feels better and breathes a sigh of relief. So when I had Clooney and uh, what's it called, Descendants, and Matt Damon and Downsizing, win-win. I've got stars who are right for the part, yep. and everybody feels good. What's what's the lesson learned <clears throat> if there is
1: one for yourself on Downsizing? I mean. Is, what, what, it must have been a trial for you to go through that. I mean, you, you'd never really experienced anything like, close to that in your
0: career. It's not that big a stretch, man. I mean, ultimately <laughs> it's probably a screenplay problem than anything else. It's an idea that probably would have been better served by a limited series in hindsight than a feature film. Uh, yes, I found arduous visual effects because I just don't care that much. Right about sitting in those endless damn visual effects meeting talking about contrast. And I'm like, well, that doesn't quite look right. Well, what doesn't look right to you? I don't know, you're the expert. (laughs) You tell me what doesn't look right about it.
1: You don't come here and tell me how to direct Jack Nicholson. I'm just telling
0: you, it doesn't feel right, man. You're (laughs) supposed to be the expert. I saw it again projected a few months ago. I didn't think the visual effects were that bad. I was kind of pleased with them. And there are some beautiful passages in that movie. But I don't have any big takeaway. Right. You know, you can't listen, man. You can't win win them all. Yeah. And my joke lately has been that in 600 years when people really are small, <laughs> I will be worshiped as a god. You know, so many statues on the, in the in the rubble that is the It'll earth. Will be hailed
1: as a as a masterpiece exactly. of, of early cinema, <laughs>
0: the first 300 years of early of cinema.
1: Yeah, before cinema was just pumped right into our brains. Yeah. Um,
0: but it, it was fun to make. It just had that extra layer of stuff on it. Uh, the other thing about higher budget movies, which is again fine, you know, whatever, but there's an extra layer of people breathing down your neck, sure, because of the budget and then what it's going to cost to market it and that kind of thing. So when I say freedom lies in lower budgets, just not as many people are bra- breathing down your neck. so so there's no quote unquote
1: four quadrant hundred fifty million dollar every you know summer July fourth release in the Alexander Payne arsenal.
0: Sure, you- why not? But don't uh, think that every one of those movies has to be a visual effects movie or, you know, don't get too caught up in what's uh, current today. Jim Brooks was making uh, highly priced human comedies. Nancy Myers has. Um, uh, Sidney Pollack was. Yep. See, and I actually miss those. Me too. That yeah. now a lot of that was star salaries, which you can say star and director salaries which are overblown. Right. And I think that's a big mistake with all respect. We still want to keep our prices down. It's just good business. Um but yes, I wanna you know I wanna be no job too big, no job too small. It just depends on what it is. Any more Jurassic films in your future or you that was just to... a job, man. <laughs> it was a job. What he's referring to is Jim Taylor and I rewrote Jurassic Park 3, 20 years It is a curiosity. When
1: you go down the resume, that's like one of these things is not like the other. It's just an interesting.
0: You know what? It was a good job. Jim and I had done the last uncredited uncredited rewrite on Meet the Parents for Universal. And then Jurassic Park 3 was coming up. And a month out of shooting, away from shooting, they needed help not with the dinosaurs, but with the people. So we were ca- uh, called in to do some character work. Let me end with just a couple
1: um, miscellaneous uh, questions for you. What's the most frequent direction you give your actors on set?
0: Great, now faster.
1: To the point. Uh, have you ever had to fire anyone? Yes. <laughs> it's horrible. Without but you name, have to do it without naming names. Like, what's the what are the kind of circumstances that that
0: creates someone that? was disobedient.
1: Did you ever think you were ever going to be fired from a film?
0: No. Okay, you're the mayor of Hollywood. You can
1: do anything. You can change the business with one one fell swoop. What do you change? I'd have to think about that one. Okay, fair enough. Best script you've ever
0: written that's not been produced? Most of the ones Jim and I have written have been made, I'm sorry to say. You know Mm -hmm. what? We did a rewrite years ago on something called Tucker Ames as Himself. It never got made. It disappeared into the ethos, but it was sort of a parody of a of a Bill Gates guy who gets his comeuppance in some way. I can't exactly remember, but that, that one that one had some good stuff in it. It's got a good title. Yeah.
1: I'm glad to see that you're you're selling out next by doing a film about rival antique Chair dealers. Chair dealers. Again, you're going to that Barbie Oppenheimer. I'd
0: love to sell out and get a (laughs) bunch of money.
1: (laughs) We said it. Your movies do sometimes make a lot of money. It doesn't mean I
0: get it. Pay this man. He deserves it all. No, I'm serious. The the phrase is, it has been for years, you get famous in movies but rich on TV. Right. (laughs) And that's pretty much how it is.
1: So where's your max 10-part series that's going to...
0: Buy Stop torturing me.
1: Sorry, I'm <laughs> just trying to, I'm looking out for you. You've given us so much, I want to give back. Thanks,
0: thanks. I like what I do. <laughs> I like what you I'm do too. I'm yeah. not complaining, I'm not complaining.
1: I'll let you go on that. Um, the Holdovers is fantastic, as thank you can you. tell. I'm very such kind. an admirer you. of your work. Everybody should see it, most importantly, seen in a the theater, with friends, laugh, go through all the emotions, enjoy it. Um, and thank you so much for this time. You're very really kind, thanks lot. very much. Thanks for
0: the interest. Thank you.